And I always feel like I, I, I always tell my kids, oh, I've got a good slang. And they tell me, ma, that's from the 80s. Like, don't brag about that. <laughs> David. Hey, Amy. How are you? I'm pretty good. How was your week? It was great. You know, I want to share, I heard the coolest story, which is I had a great grandmother named Severina Mm -hmm. Montecuco Traverso. Oh, wow. (laughs) And here's what I learned. She trained under a French chef at this very beautiful estate Mm -hmm. in Piemonte, where she met my great-grandfather. He was a musician, I understand. He was the second son. He wasn't going to inherit anything. And so she marched herself down to Genoa. She left her kids with her Uh mother-in-law and went to America where she got to Ellis Island. They said, what can you do? She said, I can cook. They sent her north to Boston or to Plymouth, Massachusetts, where she cooked for the men who were digging the Cape Cod Canal. Really? It was her cooking that brought the Traversos to America. She saved enough money and went back and brought her husband and children to America. But I knew she had done that. I Mm -hmm. knew she had cooked for the men. I didn't realize she was so formally trained and was such an accomplished cook. So you just found that out. Yeah, so that was exciting. And I've been doing some really fun baking, made some shortbread with cardamom and almond, and they're just really delicious. So I've had a good food week. Now, was that her recipe? No, this was a recipe I'm developing for Yankee, for Yankee but I've had a good food week and I feel like I've found some ancestral connection to cooking, which is wow. really nice. That's fascinating. Yeah. How about you? Well, mine's far less poetic than that. It's much more <laughs> prosaic. It's just, have you ever cooked or grilled bavette? No, I've done flank steak, mm-hmm. but not bavette. Not bavette. And bavette is not quite flank steak. They come from the same general area, and it's a little bit higher up. But I'll tell you, it is amazing. I always think of flank steak as one of those things that you have to quick sear and can mm-hmm. be tough. This wasn't. and had a little bit of fat on it, but it was just so incredibly tasty mm. that I don't think I want to cook flank steak anymore. I think I want to cook bevette and bevette's the way the French say it. So it sounds so much more classy than flank steak <laughs> or flap steak. You know, I'm cooking bevette. Right. So that really <laughs> that is the only great. major thing that I had this week and certainly not as beautiful and poetic as your grandma leading over the entire family to America. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have a very exciting guest this week, Patty Heenich, who yeah. is... I just love her. I mean, she her just energy is amazing, isn't it? Amazing, amazing. She just makes you feel so welcomed and yeah. so excited to do what she does. So what was the most interesting part about what she said for you? You know, Patty is such an incredible authority on Mexican cuisine and mm-hmm. has really made it her career to travel the country and explore all the regional cuisines that you may have never heard of. So getting her talking about that yeah. and, you know, the things she's discovered in each state, each of the 31 states of Mexico yeah. was so fascinating. For me, it was that incredible salsa that she talked about, all yes. the nuts that are and pistachios and walnuts and all this. It just, it makes you want to run out right now and make that. Yes, yes. yes. That's how, when she talks about food, I immediately want to start cooking. 
Well, welcome to the show, Patty. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me on. It's such a treat for me to be chatting with you guys. Us too. And congratulations on Treasures of the Mexican Table. It's a New York Times bestseller. And our recipe testers, we have about 200 of them. They absolutely loved the book. Oh, I am so happy to hear, David. And that just makes all that work worthwhile. You know, when people Doesn't are cooking it? your food and they're making those recipes their own, mm-hmm. that's just the best feeling. So thank you it for is. that. So we've established we absolutely love your work. But what's so interesting to me is that this work came about a little bit as a pivot for you. So could you just tell us a brief history of how you went from a political analyst Mm. to a celebrity chef? (laughs) Absolutely. And I always tell my kids I have three boys, well, three grown-up men by now. And I always (laughs) tell them, you know, as they move through life and have to make decisions, I always tell them, don't research too much, you know, because Mm. I switched careers midlife when I already had kids and I thought I wanted to be an academic and a political analyst. And I was very afraid of taking the plunge and making a very radical left turn. And Mm. and I always say, you know, whatever you do that comes from another field will only help you and give you a fresh Mm -hmm. perspective in what you are doing. So at the time it was daunting. I so I was a political analyst trained in Mexico, did a master's in Latin American studies here in Georgetown, worked in a think tank, worked for many years Mm -hmm. trying to work on themes that had to do with strengthening democratic institutions and civic culture. Mm. And then I was just very hungry to connect with people in a way that really made a difference. And I found that (laughs) things just made sense for me much better if I ate them. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. Then I realized how much layers, how much we can share, how much we can tell through food. And Mm -hmm. I switched careers and I haven't looked back. Wow. So cool. Did you have training as a chef? Yes. Did you just go to school? Yes, David. So I, you know, I trained first as a political analyst and I'm a researcher, hardcore a researcher by heart. And when I decided to switch careers and I wanted to move from being a political analyst to a food writer, that's what I wanted Mm -hmm. to do, I felt that I really needed the academic, the theoretical Mm -hmm. chops. I needed to Mm -hmm. know what I was going to be writing and talking about. So I enrolled in cooking school in La Academia de Cuisine in Gaithersburg. Mm -hmm. It has closed since then, but it was a great Mm -hmm. school. And it really gave me that theoretical backbone, but it Uh also showed me a lot of what was lacking in these, you know, global world because everything Mm -hmm. that was taught to us was very Eurocentric, which of course mm-hmm. it's very important to Latin cuisine and Mexican food as well because there's such an intermarriage of old world and new world in our food. Mm-hmm. But I saw nothing of you know, or historical techniques like the charring, mm. the roasting, the nixtamalization or or ingredients. So I came up from that very grateful from all I've learned but wanting to write a curriculum about how to approach Mexican food. And that's when I approached the Mexican Cultural Institute here in D.C. and said, you know, we should have a Mexican cooking program that approached Mm -hmm. Mexican Mm -hmm. food from that historical, Mm -hmm. analytical point of view. Like, let's study Mexican food through history, through the regions, through the different influences. And that has really marked my approach since then. Wow. It's interesting that you're talking about this because 
Can you give us a brief outline of the roots of Mexican cuisine in Mexico, not the European influence yet, yes. but in Mexico. Absolutely. And this is so fascinating, David, because, you know, I started Paris Mexican Table, which is my cooking show that has been on air for, we're going on our 11th season. And mm-hmm. I started Paris Mexican Table and the cookbooks I write to open a window into everything that I was missing from Mexico. It's food, it's culture, trying to break myths and misconceptions. And along the way, what I've realized is how little I knew as a Mexican of my own food and country and how little Mexicans know. So before Mm -hmm. the Spanish arrived in Mexico, Mexico had many different Mexican civilizations that make Mexico today, Mm -hmm. but you had the Mayas, which were very different from the Aztecs, from the Chichimecas, from the Totonacas, from the, you know, all these different tribes that had some common denominators like the use of corn and beans and chiles. And then that combined with the Spanish colonial world that dominated Mexico for 300 years. And from that intermarriage, we get the classic Mexico that, you know, we learn and know. But then after that, the history books also forgot or attempted to submerge many immigrant waves that are crucial to understanding Mexico, like the African immigrant wave. There were 300,000 African slaves that came into Mexico and then Mm. the Asians, the Japanese, Chinese, Filipinos, the Jews, here's my family showing up in Mexico, (laughs) fleeing from one thing or another, the Lebanese, the Syrians. So in my quest to show Mexico to the U.S., it became an education for me Mm -hmm. and my fellow Mexicans as to what is Mexico. Mm. That's fascinating. Really fascinating. And when we think about what we know of as Mexican food in the U.S., it is the thinnest sliver of the top of a mountain. (laughs) And I don't think most of us think of Mexican cuisine as being so richly layered and so so much input from other countries. You know, we don't think of that. We think of America as being the big melting pot. Mexico is also a very big melting pot. Exactly. So you have all these waves that are like just crashing into each other. So you have the evolving Mexico, the Mexico that Mm -hmm. continues to evolve. Every time that I come back to Mexico, I'm learning something new. To give you an example, my -hmm. new season of Paris Mexican Table, which I hope you'll watch, it will premiere this fall. Mm -hmm. I go to Nuevo León. It's a northern Mexican state that I'm embarrassed to say I have never, ever been before. That's where Monterrey is. Mm. And... I didn't know it was a state established by Sephardic Jews that were fleeing the Inquisition established by the Spanish colony. Mm -hmm. And they came to Mexico as Marranos, as converts, and then they were fleeing the Inquisition, established Monterrey in the north. So Nuevo León is very different from the south of Mexico, very scarce, there's very few ingredients, and they've made so much of those ingredients. So you have the cabrito, the goat that's cooked on a spit comes Mm -hmm. from that. You have the flour tortillas. Listen to this. As a chilanga, a Mexican from Mexico City, I used to think that flour tortillas were an American thing. 
You know, mm-hmm. and even yeah. as a grown-up woman, when I moved to the U.S. and I was a trained historian and I was doing political mm-hmm. analysis, I saw flour tortillas as an American thing. And mm-hmm. it's so humbling to realize that the northern states of Nuevo León, Sonora, Sinaloa, have been making flour tortillas since the 1500s. And Mm, a good flour tortilla can give any corn tortilla a run for its money. And I used to say, you know... I agree with that. um, So they're (laughs) deeply Mexican too. So we have all these puddles of ignorance, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, But And at the same time, you get to learn everything that's in Mexico and that continues to evolve in Mexico because there's still immigration and there's still evolution and creative chefs playing with ingredients. But then you get this other wave that's coming the other direction where Mexican food knows no borders. Mexican food is completely mm. borderless and you have phenomenal regional Mexican food in the U.S. You have New Mexican, Tex-Mex, mm-hmm. California Mex, and it makes people very afraid, I think. Huh. Now, why is that? That's interesting. I think it's something to rejoice and celebrate. Yes. I think it just speaks to the strength and power of the pillars of Mexican cuisine and culture. I feel like for some Mexicans, it's safe to say real, authentic Mexican food is south of the border. And right. That. Yeah. And for many Americans that are purists, in Mexican food, they say, oh, anything north of the border is a bastardization of Mexican food. Mm-hmm. I guess it's a way, you know, as human beings, we're all flawed. It's a way to try to control and label and put things in boxes because it's yep. easier mm-hmm. for us to understand the world if we categorize, like thinking that we live in a flowy thing, it's kind of scary. Yeah. But you have authentic, I think that's a completely overused word. And so I love to say authentic is whatever is good for you and whatever you grew up eating. There's so many Mexican communities that either existed in the U.S. before the U.S. became the U.S. Mm -hmm. or that have moved to the U.S. and have brought their techniques and ingredients and grown roots in the U.S. and started making Mexican food with the ingredients they find in the U.S., mm-hmm. creating new, delicious, mouth-watering Mexican foods. Who's to say that that's not good or authentic? And, mm-hmm. and exactly. That's no less authentic than something that was created in the middle and the heart of a state in Mexico. That same thing happens. And Amy, tell me if this happens in your your heritage too. But my family's from Portugal. And if something is slightly different based upon what someone else made, it's not authentic. So when the waves of Azorian immigrants came to America and they were including local ingredients, the Portuguese back home said that's not authentic. And I disagree. I think it is authentic. I grew up with things they didn't eat back in Portugal. Mm-hmm. It's because my family did with what they could with what they found. Exactly. That's authentic. Exactly. That's authentic. You you hit the nail on the head. I love it because the more years I'm in the US, the more slang I get. And I think that <laughs> I always feel like I, I, I always tell my kids, Oh, I've got a good slang. And they tell me, Ma, that's from the eighties. Like, don't brag about that. But I I was gonna say that is exactly the case. That's why mm-hmm. I feel like and I love food because I think that it gives us these opportunity to understand the world in a way that it's daunting for the brain 
it's good as a rational animal because you're eating it, you're enjoying it. Sometimes you don't need to understand things. You just need to, you know, I want to eat that food, David, and say this is something amazing. And if it is mm -hmm. from Portugal and it is from here, what's worthwhile for me is that it's absolutely delicious, that mm -hmm. it has a story. And I think that that's why I get kind of baffled sometimes when I see a lot of restrictions in the food world and people saying, you know, these are the people who can cook this and this is what is authentic and this is what is right and what is wrong because I think that the beauty and the noble character of food is allowing us humans to go beyond labels. And that just happened to me in an outrageous way when I was filming La Frontera, which is mm -hmm. docu-series that I'm working on on the borderland Border food. cuisine. Yes. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I think if I used to think that Mexican food was demonized and, you know, had so many preconceptions and misconceptions, even though people love Mexican food, people are always judging mm -hmm. Mexican food, but border foods and Tex-Mex food and Mexico food and all the foods from the border are so criticized. And yeah. when you get down there and you eat the food... It's so vibrant, it's so raw, it's so free, it's so delicious. Mm. It's dishes that are holding on tightly to tradition while they're breaking new ground at the same time. And then mm -hmm. there's this delicious tension that, in my experience, I've only tasted at the border. And I think it's hard to understand if you're not there or if you're not mm -hmm. eating the food. And it just sh has shown me how limited we are in our brains, you know, mm. in our minds. Yeah, it's true. I lived in New Mexico for a couple of years, and the cuisine there is, I mean, it's a beautiful, amazing, rich, diverse, perfect cuisine in my mind. So I'm with you on that. <laughs> so you just spoke to something that I've been thinking about, and David has as well, which is, you know, I think a lot of Americans became familiar with Mexican food beyond Tex-Mex through the work of people like Rick Bayless or Diana Kennedy, And they've done excellent work. But I think right now there's also a question of, do we need American or British translators to be mm -hmm. explaining Mexican food to the majority of Americans? Yes. Yeah. And I think that's such an important point. I feel that when I started Paris Mexican Table, which was excruciatingly difficult to get off the ground. I mean, mm -hmm. yes, it took me over three, four years. And the biggest part of it, the biggest obstacles were my accent. A lot of people, networks and WETA and APT2, like they were worried about people not understanding my accent. So my accent was one thing. And then also a lot of people thinking that Mexican food was too ethnic. Of course, we're talking about 10 yeah, years that's ago. That's so crazy. Of course, yes. You know, everything that I was saying was, why do we need to get taught what Mexican food is by non-Mexicans? Why can't Mexicans share Mexican food? Exactly. Why can Chinese share, mm. you know, Chinese food? And with our memories and histories and language, 
This has mm -hmm. been so Patty's Mexican Table. When I started the show, we used to translate everything that I did in Mexico. Slowly mm. but surely, everything that we do in Mexico now, we subtitle because the great. audience has changed. It has opened. It's willing to listen to a dialogue in Spanish. Mm -hmm. Most people prefer that genuine conversation that with subtitles. Yes. But 10 years ago, you couldn't do that. So, yeah. but I also think that then there's the politically correct police, right? So I yeah. think everybody has a right to cook Mexican food. Everybody. Mm -hmm. And if you go to Mexico and learn and want to share it, like by all means, if you want to open up a restaurant, by all means, to give you an example, there's a fabulous restaurant here in DC that's called Tiger Fork. The chef mm -hmm. is Peruvian. The cuisine is Chinese food, mainly from Hong Kong. It is mm -hmm. extraordinary. He lived in Hong Kong. He trained in Hong Kong. He came back and he's passionate about Hong Kong and, and, and Chinese mm -hmm. food. Why can't he, you know? Well, mm -hmm. he right. did, he could, and it's phenomenal. And he's honoring the cuisine and he's giving credit, you know, yes. Yes. where he lear he's learned and he took the time and he spent, you know, his years learning. And so I think there's a way to do it. That's, yeah. that's okay. But I also think there's the extreme that says, if you're not Mexican, you can't. Right. And then there's yes. the shades of grays. Like, do you have to be a certain color to cook something? Mm -hmm. Right. Because people don't yeah. understand either that in Mexico, there's all colors of people yeah. that are Mexican. Yeah. Right. And so I guess we get boggled down in all of that. And so you don't have a problem with an American chef or cookbook author becoming the voice of Mexican cuisine in America? That doesn't bother you? I mean, I think that we're past that time because mm -hmm. I think yeah. with the media and social media and all these fabulous voices, there's so many people that have their own channels that are, I, I don't yeah. think one can say that there is one voice, you know? Right. That not anymore. Exactly. I think not anymore, which I think is a phenomenal yeah. development. There's there's this diversity and richness of, mm -hmm. of voices that speak to a culture mm -hmm. of a cuisine. And I think we should all embrace that, you know? I have yeah. absolutely no problem with anyone, anywhere in the world, cooking Mexican food. And what I always say is here, you know, I'm sharing a recipe for, say, authentic Mexican Swiss enchiladas which are mm -hmm. authentic in Mexico from Sanborns. They happen to have so much cream and melty cheese. And they're called Swiss because Mexicans used to think that anything that was called Swiss had a lot of cream and cheese. Mm -hmm. And for Mexicans, we love those enchiladas. Guess who came up with those enchiladas? Oh. It was two American brothers who moved mm -hmm. to Mexico uh -huh. in the early 1900s who opened up Sanborns a coffee huh. shop that wanted yeah. to have American and Mexican food. And they came up with the Swiss enchiladas and they're the most Mexican thing in Mexico City, you know? <laughs> so I just think there's all these nuances. Okay, I'll give you another example. I was in two, oh, I, I say Tucson. You know, it was so confusing because I was in Tucson <laughs> uh, filming one episode a few seasons ago when we were... I, it was called the Gateway to Sonora. So we went from <laughs> Tucson and we saw how the barrio bread baker was making his bread with wheat from Sonora. And it was just 
an extraordinary experience. And I was in Tucson eating all kinds of Mexican food because they have great Mexican food. And we go to a restaurant that's owned by a Mexican-American woman generations of Mexican people that have lived in Tucson before Tucson became the U.S. And they were selling Nutella tamales. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So mm -hmm. I took a photo of the Nutella tamal and I posted it to my Twitter. I mean, the politically correct police like jumped on, why are you posting a Nutella tamal? You're... And it yeah. wasn't Mexicans who were commenting on this, which was the interesting thing. It was all these people saying that that was wrong, that that was inappropriate, that uh, that was cultural appropriation to an extreme. Guess yeah. what? This was a Mexican woman making this tamal. And guess what? If you go to Mexico, to any panaderia anywhere, you're going to find Nutella because Mexicans... We love Nutella. Are we not yeah. allowed to eat Nutella because we're Mexican? You know? Right, right. Some of this for me personally, Amy, I don't know how you feel. Some of this has gone too far in my mind. I know that I'm thinking about Portuguese cuisine where there's a lot of Portuguese cooks and chefs who say no one but uh, someone who is Portuguese can write a Portuguese cookbook. I don't have that belief. If you know Portuguese cuisine, write about Portuguese cuisine. You know, if you know what it is, where it comes from, the history, and you're faithful and true to that history, go for it. Otherwise, you know, I mean, talking about Mexican food, I was just thinking yeah. this as you were saying. The only problem with Mexican food is when someone makes bad Mexican food. Exactly. That's my only problem <laughs> is when someone makes bad Mexican food. Otherwise, I am fine with Mexican food because it's fantastic cuisine. I think the problem is not with Rick Bayless making beautiful food. It's the assumption that used to underlie his success, which was that we needed an American to translate the food for us. I think if Rick Bayless is one voice among many, including, especially including Mexican voices, mm -hmm. that's great. It was the, it was the idea that Americans, first of all, it was the idea that Everyone in America somehow didn't know Mexican cuisine as if there weren't Mexicans here. Then the second that Anglo-Americans needed a translator. That, I think, to me, is the problematic part, not him yeah. or his work. And it I think that, Patty, I think you said it really well. A lot of those strings have been cut because of social media, because of the democratization of media, that anyone who knows about Mexican cuisine or Portuguese cuisine or Italian cuisine can have their own channel and can share their own experiences. I agree. See what I mean, Amy? Yeah, yeah. This is work that's happening, I think, on so many levels. Mm -hmm. But just dismantling the assumption that a version of American whiteness is the default and needs to be catered to at all times. And that if you're putting out media, that's your audience. Mm -hmm. And I think, thankfully, that assumption is being dismantled yeah. and it allows mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for so much better everything. We all tend to look at the past with today's glasses, right? Mm -hmm. I remember when I started teaching Mexican food, you know, mm -hmm. 15 years ago, I cannot begin to tell you how I've seen not only the palate of the American audience evolve, their hunger, their openness, their the appetite, curiosity. their curiosity, but also, mm -hmm. and very importantly, the availability of ingredients. Mm -hmm. So 15 years ago, you couldn't find all these dried chiles, ancho, guajillo, chipotle. People don't know, didn't know, you know, what you were talking about then. And so 
it's just kind of easy to judge things, you know, 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, maybe, you know, people needed, wanted certain people to teach them something at a time Mm -hmm. when there weren't the ingredients available. I mean, luckily and thankfully for all of us, there's so many Mexicans here and so many people that love Mexican food and trade has evolved Mm-hmm. And you have online shopping now. If you can't get these dried chile in your grocery store in the middle of wherever you may live, you can get it online. But it's also having the access to the ingredients, the access to the information readily available in your Instagram feed or your computer or whatever yeah. it may be. The channels were less, were more limited. They mm-hmm. were, as you were saying, much more controlled. Mm-hmm. So I think now there's this unbridled like source of ingredients and content that it can be daunting, I think. And mm-hmm. in that river of information, there's amazing sources and there's yeah. terrible sources. I mean, sometimes the, the videos that people will share with me and they're like, Patty, what do you think about these? And I'm like, <laughs> right. I'm not even going to comment, you know? <laughs> and, you know, people using and and just to get attention like just a cupboard of spices over something and calling Mm -hmm. it you know my mexican thing you know and 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 i think you know people want to play they can play and people can follow whatever you can follow and i think it's also learning to know we can't control what other people think you know Mm. of culture food at a certain time but you can only contribute with as you guys do with the best possible content yes. that you can mm-hmm. share. Mm-hmm. I agree. And yeah. let others do what they must. And then you hope that you find readers and viewers and cooks that will appreciate your content for what it is. Mm. Patty, you were talking a little bit earlier about like how many influences contributed to Mexican cuisine. So one example, Patty, I think of sort of multicultural Mexican cuisine that a lot of Americans are familiar with is Tacos al Pastor. Yes. And I think that is a clear example, Amy, that Tacos al Pastor came to Mexico, you know, by way of the Lebanese community establishing itself, not only in central Mexico, Mexico City, Puebla, but there's also a very big Lebanese community in the Yucatan Peninsula. Mm -hmm. So you find versions of kibe there that are phenomenal and different and made with pork. And then you Mm. have the Tacos al Pastor, which have, you know, that fire pit, And then there's another version uh, that comes from the Lebanese community that comes from the state of Puebla, where we have this very strong uh, Lebanese community that has grown such deep roots in Mexico through the centuries. And these tacos are called tacos árabes. And Mm. they're in my new cookbook, which you guys have. Mm -hmm. And here you have marinated pork Uh, very thinly sliced in so much lime and oregano and mint. Mm -hmm. And then it's cooked on a spit, just like tacos al pastor. But then they serve it instead of in tortillas, in very thin pita breads. And you dress it with tahini mixed with a lot of fresh squeezed lime, not Uh lemon. You know, in Mexico, we use lemon and cumin and a chipotle Peanut sauce. So can you imagine that combination? Oh, that sounds heavenly. And like, thank you to the Lebanese people, (laughs) you know, for coming up with that. And people think, oh, that's like a gyro. It's made on a pita. So if you posted that on the internet today, the politically correct police would jump and say, that is not authentic. Take that off. You know, but if you go to Puebla, those tacos have been made for 
almost two centuries, you yeah. find wow. special taquerias that only make tacos arabes that have lines at the door. So yeah. I think before people jump in to criticize, you know, a dish or you know, a take or a cuisine or something, it's good to just like pause and read a little bit about the history mm -hmm. of what, yeah. you know, yeah. they're saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about some home cooking things. Yeah. What is a salsa that we should all be making this summer? I'm actually thinking about the chipotle peanut salsa in the yes. book, which is just calling to me, but mm -hmm. what's what's a salsa that, that you want everyone to try? Uh, yeah. Well, definitely, I think you guys have exactly what I have in my, in my refrigerator in the summer, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. all these salsas. I have a jar of salsa matcha at all times. Mm -hmm. My favorite take on salsa matcha, it's in my new book, and salsa matcha really breaks any idea that you may have of any salsa because it doesn't have tomatillos, it doesn't have tomatoes, mm -hmm. it's not saucy. Salsa matcha is like a cross between a wet granola, a chile crisp. Ooh. It is exquisite, Amy. David, I mean, you cook a little bit of garlic over low heat olive oil. Let it poach. Then you add your dry chiles and let them just macerate, not deep fry. Mm -hmm. I like to add ancho or guajillo and chile de árbol for some heat, but the original uses dry chipotle chiles. Mm -hmm. You can play with it talking about versions of things and then you add the nuts that you like there's many salsa matchas that have peanuts i like making salsa matcha with a lot of nuts so i add pistachos and walnuts oh. and pine mm. nuts the original salsa matcha also has sesame seeds i add sesame wow. seeds but i also add like many mexican cooks in central mexico i add amaranth seeds mm. and wow. so you have these crunchy, chunky sauce that has a lot of textures and mm. flavors. And then you add a little bit of piloncillo or dark brown sugar, a splash of vinegar. And you can use that chunky salsa mm. or garnish or condiment or whatever you call. So you have it in your fridge and you can make an avocado toast, top it with salsa matcha. You can oh. bake potatoes, drizzle oh. salsa matcha. You can make Gosh. an omelette, salsa matcha. <laughs> so hungry. You know what you can do with salsa matcha that is insane? Uh-huh. Put it on ice cream. I don't know. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> really? no. Exactly. I was going to say, you cut some fresh summer fruit, like peaches mm -hmm. or mangoes, yeah. top it with vanilla ice cream or yogurt, mm -hmm. and then add salsa matcha. And oh. it's so crazy. You can also top salsa matcha over freshly made hummus. Like, who's to wow. say? You Oof. can't do that, you know? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so talking about authentic, you find phenomenal hummus in Mexico because there's a Lebanese-Syrian community too. So it, I think the salsa matcha and the condiments, Amy, you were saying the chipotle peanut mm -hmm. salsa, that's something you can also make put it in your fridge and use it for tacos, for quesadillas, for like mm -hmm. a version of huevo rancheros. You can mm. make your, I have all these things in my fridge, like pickled onions, pickled jalapenos, pickled yeah. chipotles. And then you make a tuna nisuas, you make a tuna salad and you mix it with pickled jalapenos. Uh, mm. Condiments really make your life so easy in that you can just take out a can of something mix it with the pickled mm -hmm. potatoes and chipotles, and you have a fabulous tuna salad. Oh, right. You know, Mexican cuisine has this whole catalog of amazing, incredible marinades for meats. But yes. you have to plan for it. So what are some of the grilling things that people can do, some grilling recipes that are great for a weeknight recipe that maybe 
If they forgot to marinate, they can still do some great stuff. Oh, any carne asada. I mean, truly, mm -hmm. I used to marinate my meats a lot in the way of Mexico City. So I'm a mm -hmm. chilanga by heart. And in Mexico City, we marinate things. We marinate our skirt steak, you know, or arrachera mm -hmm. or tan pequeña or even any ribs that we're going to grill or sausages. We just marinate the heck out of them right. with Maggie sauce, Worcestershire sauce, lime mm -hmm. juice, garlic, chipotle sauce. We just add everything. And then I went to Sonora in Sinaloa, in Nuevo León, and I learned from them carne asada has nothing but salt on top, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, mm -hmm. ha, I'm for them. So there's their versions of, of carne asada. So that is something that you can really pull off. You didn't have time to marinate anything. Mm -hmm. You go get a good cut of meat. This trick I learned also from the Norteño lands in Mexico If you clean your grill grates mm -hmm. with a half or a quarter of a piece of white onion, mm. it flavors the grill grates mm -hmm. and it adds this ambience mm. to your grilling, you know, sexual environment. And it just sets the tone to something delicious is about to happen. Kind of and salad. then you use that grilled onion to make a salsa. I mean... I think the carne asada cookout is one of the easiest things because you throw mm. the meat there, you throw your corn there, and then you make corn, you make esquites, you slather the corn with... I love mayo. I don't know about you mm -hmm. guys. We uh -huh. just lather yeah. it with mayo. You do yeah. some crumbled cotija cheese, some yes. ground chile piquín, salt, mm. lime juice. You have your grilled meat. You can make quesadillas on the grill. They're so delicious. Mm -hmm. Oh, these I just learned. So in Nuevo León, they make the carne asada cookouts. And in the same grill where you cook your meat and your vegetables and your tortillas and your chilies and everything, at the end of the meal, mm -hmm. they throw flour tortillas on the grill. Mm -hmm. They drizzle them with dulce de leche or cajeta. Oh. They roll them over. If there's some leftover melty cheese, they throw that in there too. And you have a ridiculous dessert because you have the tortillas that are have that little savory taste mm -hmm. and then the melted dulce de leche and the clashing combination mm. with melty cheese. And you're done. You just made everything on the grill. Amazing. Yeah. That's perfect. So we're going to do a quick lightning round with you just Top of your head answers, okay? Yes. All right. So what is your go-to meal when you're dead tired? Quesadillas. Best time-saving trick. Oh, my gosh. I have none. <laughs> Just spend time in the kitchen. <laughs> your favorite food show or movie? Oh, my gosh. Well, movie, I think, like Water for Chocolate for sure. Mm -hmm. mm, great. Your most beaten-up cookbook? I have a few. Claudia Rodin's, mm -hmm. her first cookbook. Mm -hmm. uh, Joan Nathan's first cookbook. Mm -hmm. And Jack Pepin Cooking with Claudine. Mm, that's so nice. All right, your greatest faux pas in the kitchen. I, I have too many to recall. <laughs> <laughs> so then your last best thing that you ate. Ah, the eggs that I made this morning, which were Aww. with nopalitos and... Uh, like a Mexican-style sauce, because I have all my boys with me at home, so I'm, I'm oh. making big breakfasts each morning. Nice. Wonderful. 
Oh, Patty, it's such a pleasure having you on. We hope you'll come back and talk more about Mexican cuisine with us. It will be my pleasure. You guys are such a delight. Thank you for having me. Patty Heenich is the three-time James Beard Award-winning Mexican chef and New York Times bestselling author. Her latest book is The Wonderful Treasures of the Mexican Table. Patty is also the creator and host of the long-running Patty's Mexican Table on public television and the Emmy-nominated La Frontera primetime special that debuted in fall 2021. You can find Patty on Instagram at Patty Heenich. This podcast is produced by Overt Studios, and our producer is the spicy Adam Claremont. You can reach Adam and Overt Studios at overtstudios.com. And remember to follow Talking With My Mouthful wherever you download your favorite podcasts. As always, if you like what you hear and want to support us, please leave a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. Ciao. Oh, I got to think of something. Um, I'm, God, I'm really at a loss... Sorry. Can we do that again? I really, I, I just forgot that I need to think of something. <laughs> I like how you did La Frontera. You were doing a little bit <laughs> of rolling of I the tried. tongue. La Frontera. Very I feel like it's, a, you know, you have to respect the proper do, way to say do. it if you can, La but frontera. I end up sounding like a dummy. <laughs> like, see, I say it Portuguese words. La Frontera, but it's the La yeah. Frontera. <laughs>